one step in this long progress. It's been a team effort by us all the way. We're but part of the whole team has worked so hard. The shuttle era will come to an end. But they won't stop inspiring, and they won't stop being a part of the fabric of America. Alright, and welcome everybody to another episode of the Talking Space Podcast. This is Talking Space, episode 1006, for the week of Monday, July 16th, 2018. I'm Sawyer Rosenstein, and joining me tonight is Gene McCulka. Welcome, Gene. Let's kick the tires and light the fire, Sawyer. We're ready to rock and roll here. Oh boy, yes we are. And uh, welcome back to the show after a busy year so far. We're glad you can finally join us again, Mark Ratterman. I'm a little out of practice. Is this where I say hello? <laughs> I, I i'm confused too i don't know if this is where you say hello or goodbye but one of them will work okay oh boy <laughs> <laughs> well we're glad you're finally able to join us i know earlier this year you had your first robotics team going on and then a whole bunch of other things but we're so glad you're back with us cat robinson unfortunately is under the weather tonight and unable to join us but we hope to have her back on very soon so let's kick things off with our launch roundup. And we'll begin with Russia, actually, not a U.S. launch, because they made history. Back on Monday, July 9th, 2018, they completed the fastest ever launch to dock with the International Space Station. That was the launch of a Soyuz carrying a Progress resupply vehicle from the Baikonur Cosmodrome in Kazakhstan. That launch, and then about two orbits later... It was already docked and rendezvoused with the International Space Station, bringing a whole bunch of supplies on board. Now, just to give you an idea of timing for that, liftoff was at uh, 2151 GMT, and it uh, docked at 131 GMT. So that is less than four hours from launch to docking. That's two revs, right, sorry, if I'm not mistaken? Exactly. So, I mean, that's a good quiver to keep in the arrow if you need it. If you've got really, really an emergency going on in the ISS and you absolutely need to have that, you know, overnight or in, in a two hours period of time, that gives you a little bit more flexibility to do that. I mean, there's, there's still a lot of orbital mechanics involved. There are still a lot of things that might not go right, but... Um, uh, it's 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 a feather in the cap to uh, the folks over at Roscosmos, and congratulations. That was not no easy, uh, no easy feat to accomplish. So again, congrats. Exactly, and in terms of how this is speed wise, normally progress resupply vehicles take about two days, two to three days to dock with the ISS. Uh, crewed Soyuz capsules usually take either two days or if they take their expedited route that is six hours or four orbits so this cut that even in half so huge shout out to roscosmos on that i remember talking with the folks well now over at north of grumman 
Uh, then it was Orbital ATK, and they. I remember mentioning because at one point they were talking about possibly getting a, a rather quick deal up to the to the ISS two at one point early on in the program, and I think they've kind of put the kibosh on that plan. They they didn't they didn't really want to go ahead and and make that challenge because, again, it, it's a really difficult thing to do from what I understand because of the orbital mechanics and the physics involved. So uh, again, you know, congratulations to to Roscosmos. They pulled that that minor miracle off. Yeah, no, it, it's an amazing feat. And again, congratulations to the Russians on that. And uh, while we're at it, we're actually going to stay with some international launches. And we are going to go out to China. And uh, China, we don't have one launch, but two launches to mention. And uh, they also completed a pretty impressive feat of two launches within 24 hours. The first one also happened on Monday, July 9th, 2018. That was a Long March 2C rocket carrying two satellites for Pakistan, uh, that launch occurring at their uh, Jiquan Space Center, which is in northwest China's Inner Mongolia area. Uh, so that one launched successfully two satellites. And then, uh, less than 24 hours later, on Tuesday, uh, Long March 3A lifted off from the Jichang Space Center, which is kind of the other part of the country, uh, carrying China's newest Beidou Navigation Satellite. And uh, they've been launching many of these Beidou satellites. Um, this will be part of a network of 35 satellites, including 27 in a medium Earth orbit, and then geostationary orbit ones as well. So uh, that marks their 19th and 20th launches so far this year. And not to go ahead and uh, kind of, you know, be the, the skunk at the garden party here, but... If sorry, you've seen some of the the film that uh, China's somebody in China has been going ahead and delivering in these villages where some of these uh, stages they come really really dangerously close to a lot of these populated areas and they're carrying a lot of noxious fuel with them and when they impact you see this big orange cloud pop up and it's you know I'm I'm wondering too if China's really really going to go ahead and take reusability seriously at this point because I think right now it's an environmental problem if anything else and one of these days they're it, it, they're gonna have a bad day I think you know I'm just I'm just hoping that we don't see something that it goes into a populated area and causes some harm so uh, I'm, I'm hoping that the Chinese are gonna go ahead and take this whole thing seriously I know too they're mentioning building a a booster that's going to go ahead and exceed the lift capacity of of SLS and they were touting that and you know there, there's some military implications there too which we're not going to get into on this pro, on this particular program but we will in a later date um you know but but again the that boast i mean we're talking 2030 on that but I really think, too, they should concentrate on kind of a reusability thing uh, so then this way they don't go ahead and, you know, have a really, really cause harm to a to a local village that, you know, people may get injured or worse. Yeah, those videos show fairing pieces, boosters exploding nearby as people are on roofs watching. If you haven't seen it, they're uh, they're available on the Internet. And it's yeah, it's kind of scary, but um they just have to keep in, even if they don't go into reusability, they just need to at least consider that, hey, you know, they're not all the villages that they launch under can always be cleared and just to, you know, use caution. 
Yeah, precisely, Sawyer. So this next one is um, sort of international and sort of not. <laughs> the reason being is that uh, we're talking about the company Rocket Lab with their Electron Rocket. Uh, they are in the process of getting ready to launch their first commercial mission after their successful uh, test flight last year. Uh, and that one launching out of their launch site in New Zealand. However, they are looking now to add a second launch site, and this one in the United States. So that's why I said it's sort of international, sort of not. So their upcoming launch will be international. But they plan to build a launch site that they will call Launch Complex 2, because Launch Complex 1 is the one in New Zealand, at one of four possible locations. They've narrowed it down to Cape Canaveral, the Wallops Flight Facility in Virginia, the Pacific Spaceport Complex in Alaska, and Vandenberg Air Force Base in California. That decision expect to be announced in August. And Gene, I know we were talking a little bit about this before, but um, what are your thoughts on uh, where you think they're going to pick? My thought, in all honesty, the uh, offices are located on the West Coast. Uh, I personally think it's either going to be Vandenberg Air Force Base or the uh, the Alaska location based on, you know, a, where the company is located, number one. But number two is if you're going to go ahead and ship over parts and, and things like that, you probably want to be on the west coast of the United States. So then this way, your vehicle doesn't have that far away to go inland, all, you know, having to cross another continent, literally, uh, and and go to like the east coast. Now, there are a lot of, I'll, I'll be honest, they want to go ahead and build something where they have really ultimate control over. So... You know, I mean, Vandenberg is probably not a bad choice, but they want to go ahead and have an area where they, they can have a clear pad and build the facilities they want. Are they going to be able to do that in Alaska? Yeah, probably. Are they going to be do, be able to do that at Wallops? I'm not sure. You know, Mars will probably figure out a way to make it work. But again, from an access standpoint, it's going to be kind of interesting to go ahead and traverse the entire continental United States. Uh, can you do that at, at the Kennedy Space Center? Absolutely. There's a you know there's an abundance of old you know launch pads that haven't been touched in in years, and they're all either in a clean pad situation or can get that way if you want them to. And you could literally start from scratch. So there, there, there's a lot of you know clean pads available at the Kennedy Space Center. But from an access standpoint, and if you're and if you're going from that kind of access, I mean, you know, you've got to either go with Vandenberg or or Alaska. So I, I'm. It's probably going to end up being one of those two locations. My bet, if I if I had to go ahead and. I'm not going to go ahead and bet the ranch, but if I had to bet something on this, I don't know. I almost want to want to say Alaska and and not Vandenberg because Vandenberg, you're still under, you know, you're still under the umbrella of the uh, the U.S. Air Force, and I think um, at the Pacific Range, I'm I'm not sure if you are or not. But then again, too, over at the Kennedy Space Center, again, you are still dealing with the 45th Space Wing and dealing with all of the stuff that goes with that. Um, for wallops, you just got to deal with, deal with the Mid-Atlantic Regional Spaceport. So, 
you know, it, there, there, there's some pluses and minuses in, in, in both areas, but I think they may stick with the West Coast just simply because of the access and it's easier to to go ahead and, and, and deal with deal with things there. Unless they want to go ahead and open up a fabrication uh, facility as well. That's a whole different ball of wax. And if you're going to do that, then... I don't know. You know, KSC might be the best. What might be a a way to, way to do it too, where you can open up a shop like the same way Blue Origin did. So I, there's a lot there's a lot on the table going on, and it'll be it, it'll be fun to it'll be fun to see the decision. But I I, I still think it's going to be a West Coast kind of thing. And here's the other thing: is what kind of launches do they want? Because they've got their New Zealand site, which will help for equatorial launches if they want to get eventually into the polar orbit game then right. you're going to need something preferably more on the west coast as opposed to kennedy or wallops you know it's easier out of vandy or uh out of alaska and then uh, the other thing is i mean they want to get in on the military launch game as well right so that's why if i had to put money on it because they want both commercial and government missions so my bet would probably go towards vandenberg air force base because again you do have that little umbrella of the U.S. government, which maybe means more government contracts. So here's the interesting thing, in case you didn't know this, about Rocket Lab. Even though they launch out of New Zealand, they fly on an FAA license because of the fact that their headquarters in the United States. Their headquarters is in L.A. So if you've got their headquarters in L.A. and your other launch site in New Zealand, I feel like it's, you know, the perfect meeting point. All you gotta do is cross the Pacific for the New Zealand team. And just go up the road for the LA team. Yeah, I mean it. It makes sense. I mean that. That's why I'm still thinking it's going to be a West Coast solution um, for uh, uh, for Rocket Lab. I'm still waiting too. I mean Sawyer, you pointed out earlier they were supposed to launch their first uh, commercial payload, and then they had a hold, um, which kind of ruined the whole day. And you know, as as you know, we were, I was closely following that. Unfortunately, I don't know where we are with that. There hasn't been any any new announcement for a launch date coming, so we're just gonna, you know, kind of, you know, light the fires and and make sure that uh, uh, you know we're watching our emails and and see when that uh, that new launch date's going to be. Um, but uh, again, this is the first paying launch for for Rocket Lab, and and they want to make sure it it they get they get it right for their customers. Understandably so. Again, it's a new company that had one successful test flight, but admittedly the um, the lack of information is quite frustrating. And I hope this doesn't become consistent. And you know, again, their live streams when they do them are great. Uh, it's just you know getting the information out between the launches so yeah we'll see and uh, we'll keep an eye out on their second launch site that announcement again expected to come up in august so we'll be keeping an eye out for that continuing along uh we're talking a little bit about you know the wallops flight facility and kennedy space center we do have uh two missions out of there to talk about first off we had uh, crs-15 successfully take off in the uh, dark of june 29th uh, that launching from Space Launch Complex 40 at the Kennedy Space Center on board that creepy face. Up, but that, <laughs> Simon. That face known as Simon, uh, as well as a few other fantastic experiments studying vegetation. And I do have to give a shout out uh, to one experiment that was launched whose head is a professor at Florida State University, of which I am also part-time employed. So... Shout out to uh, the Knowles uh, who got their experiment launched uh, 
looking at uh, inorganic structures that may be growing under the seas of other planets. Yep, and I believe there's also some uh, some cancer research too that's up there uh, on this particular flight flight as well. Um, there was a very interesting exchange during the CRS 15 press conference, and we're going to get into that a little later. This it's a good lead in though to to a story that we're gonna we're gonna take a look at at a little later. But uh, uh, again, CRS 15 is currently on site at uh, um, at the station. But uh, as Sawyer, you pointed out, there was another vehicle that kind of sailed away uh, this morning. Exactly. As uh, one vehicle arrived on today's recording date, which is Sunday, July 15th, 2018, the Cygnus resupply vehicle, originally launched by Orbital ATK, now known as uh, Northrop Grumman uh, Innovation Systems, I think. Yes. Basically, <laughs> Orbital ATK, now Northrop Grumman's Cygnus resupply vehicle, successfully removed from the International Space Station, now to begin its two-week extended mission before it burns up in the atmosphere. And uh, in the past, they've done an experiment called Sapphire, seeing how fire works in space, but... Uh, Gene, they're doing a few different tests this time, right? Yeah, not on board. Not on board this time. Um, NASA, well, NASA astronaut uh, Serena Orrin Chancellor and uh, ESA astronaut Alexander Gerst were at the controls uh, to uh, go ahead and safely release Cygnus this morning at uh, 8:37 a.m. Eastern Daylight Time. And uh, after Cygnus departed, Serena Orrin Chancellor had a had a very interesting little observation. Now, keep in mind, this is her first uh, her first space flight ever, and uh, she had never done anything like this before. And she, well, let, let's go ahead and play the observation. For the Alton, I just wanted to tell you that it was really cool watching Cygnus depart. Um, almost a little surreal to watch a cargo vehicle like that depart the station and then to see it from a distance and just think this was a normal day at the office. I can only imagine, Serena, the views were pretty spectacular down here, uh, so they must have been even more spectacular up there. They definitely were. Almost difficult to describe. So, yeah, I mean, it, it, it just goes to show how excited she's there to go ahead and uh, continue to work and, and uh, on orbit and so on. But I, I just thought it was, it was a real cool, cool thing, you know, her saying that this was just another day at the office to think that that, you know, watching the, the, this, this huge spacecraft depart with about uh, 600, you know, 6,600 uh, pounds of, uh, of refuse on board and uh, has a mission to go ahead and uh, launch six CubeSats and then uh, do some engineering studies. Um, it's also proven itself a good uh, uh, spacecraft. It was the first time a U.S. Uh, spacecraft had reboosted the ISS since the space shuttle. Uh, o o the OA-9 uh, SSJR Thompson uh, went ahead, I believe, just before it uh, departed the ISS a couple of days ago, um, reboosted the ISS and proved that the spacecraft could indeed do that. And uh, it's nice to have that quiver in your pocket, too, because um, as of right now, I think the only other spacecraft that could do that is uh, is Progress and um, and the Japanese HTV. We, ATV, which was the, uh, the European spacecraft, was able to do that, too, but we don't fly ATV anymore. And uh, the, uh, the Japanese uh, HTVs are kind of few and far between uh, runs. So 
you know, it, it's good to have have a U.S. fallback if if you need it. And Cygnus has once again proven its its worth um, to the uh, 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 to the uh, ISS program by going ahead and not only delivering science and uh, logistics, uh, reboosting the International Space Station, but also kind of cleaning up the place too. I mean, if you've got a small apartment, um, it's kind of difficult to go ahead and clean up the trash. But once you do, and it's like, wow, I didn't think we had all this room. And uh, you have to remember too, the ISS, I believe, has about as much um, floor space as I think a six bedroom home. So if, and things get kind of cluttered up there. So you want to make sure that you're able to go ahead and take out the trash. And and uh, the Cygnus spacecraft is, is pretty good at that, but it's also pretty good at some other things too. And I believe that's what this engineering um, regime is going to do as well. It's going to find out what this, this vehicle can really, really do. Because I think they're, they're trying to, to prime Cygnus for possibly in the future, uh, dealing with the, uh, the, the, new, the, deep, the deep space gateway uh, that will be deployed around the moon and use Cygnus as not only just for, um, you know, resupply, but also possibly for, you know, boosting the orbit of that too. So there's, there's going to be a future for this spacecraft and there's going to be a future again, you know, for the, the, the cargo dragon as well. I'm sure SpaceX is looking, looking at the, uh, the deep space gateway as an opportunity for them too. So uh, stay tuned. There's a lot coming up. And, uh, but uh, for OA-9 or um, for the, I, I don't know if I can refer to this, this mission as OA-9 anymore. Because uh, I know the NASA PAO uh, uh, gentleman was, was referring to this as the Northrop Grumman Cygnus. Um, he caught himself a couple times saying orbital ATK, and I thought I was going to do the same thing. The, the, this, this segment isn't over yet, so hang around. Um, but, uh, uh, yeah, the, the spacecraft has still got a lot to go ahead and accomplish. Um, and it's going to go ahead and prove itself in the long run. And I think it's, it, it's going to be an extraordinarily versatile vehicle going forward. I mean, I know Northrop Grumman's got, before the acquisition, I knew Orbital ATK had some plans to go ahead and use Cygnus literally as an experimental free flyer. So, you know, if you were interested in buying time on Cygnus uh, as just as an experiment for autonomous uh, low Earth orbit experimentation and that you could possibly do from the ground, I know that that was one thing that they were looking at doing. And I guess that that's going to be mean that may be carried over into the new new regime uh, with Northrop Grumman. But I'm sure that there are other things that that this vehicle can do that it's <laughs> it's just going to be an untapped resource. Um, I mean, the future for the for the for the Cygnus spacecraft to me looks pretty bright, as well as the the cargo dragon. And just wait until the the deep space gateway is established. You know that that still needs to be restocked and and reset and and boosted and and you know, basically tended. And these two spacecraft are really really poised to do that. Keep in mind too, we are going to have a third player coming on um, on the stage in the not too distant future with. Uh, uh, Sierra Nevada Space Systems and the, the uh, cargo version of the Dream Chaser. So there are possibilities there too. And again, believe it or not, in space, space is a premium. 
So uh, it's great that you've got something that can <laughs> kind of take out the trash. Yes. Uh, yeah. I had to throw up on you. Uh, and uh, again, the boost, most people don't realize that it's not zero gravity, it's microgravity. So gravity right. is still pulling down on it, and the ISS lowers its orbit every time it goes. Usually it's not a lot, but over time, that could be drastic enough that it would eventually burn up if it didn't get a boost. So typically these Reese fly vehicles that have a small engine on it can give it a little nudge, put it back into a higher orbit, and keep it going. And again, that used to be the job of the shuttle. Then it was ATV, HTV in progress, and so now at least we've got another option in there again. And so, like you've been mentioning, a very uh, versatile vehicle, and uh, it'll be interesting to see them get involved with where it goes in the future. And uh, again, the SpaceX Dragon capsule also, uh, how it continues to evolve in the future, because I know their second iteration is on its way uh, to being built along with the Cygnus. And don't forget then, we also have Crew Dragon too, which, uh, speaking of... Yeah, well... Tell uh, me how you really feel. Speaking of Crew Dragon, uh, <laughs> the, the first capsule, the first Crew Dragon capsule that will be performing its test flight, that will be an unmanned test flight to the ISS and back, that capsule arriving at the Kennedy Space Center this past week as well. Uh, that came from the Glenn Research Center was where it was at last. Is that yeah, correct, Gene? Or? Yeah, that was over at Plumbrook over at the, uh, the at their, uh, their, uh, there used to be an extraordinarily loud, no, large, large, not loud, um, test tunnel that was actually used. The last time it was used was actually for the Apollo, uh, spacecraft. And it was just basically used to go ahead and test, um, look for leaks, that kind of thing in a, uh, in a vacuum environment and that's what uh the d1 spacecraft just went through uh for um uh for its potential launch in well yeah that's what we don't really know for sure there was a very interesting point of contention that occurred i guess it was uh during the pre-launch press briefing for crs 15 which um I, I'm just gonna go ahead and play for you now. It's about three minutes long. I did edit, I will be honest with you. Usually I just run these things as is, but I edit it for time and I cut out two things. And I will be honest with you upfront what I did cut out. I cut out the, um, the reference from Jessica Jensen, who was basically describing what they were doing over, over at the, uh, the plumber, uh, uh, facility for NASA and they were just testing the vehicle and then she said they're going to ship it out to the uh, to the Kennedy Space Center the D1 uh, crew dragon or the 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 demo one crew dragon is right now at KSA undergoing what is being characterized as final checkouts uh, for that mission so the, those are the only two things and I, I cut out just some dead air but um, uh, Sawyer, why don't you run that that here? There's a lot of work. As you know, the companies are working very, very hard to finish the design and certification of their vehicles. Um, uh, so both both companies um, are in various stages of that work. There's, in addition to actually manufacturing and doing environmental tests, there's analytical verification, and then NASA participates in all those things. And then there's launch processing and, and so on. So I can tell you that the Commercial Coup Program, the International Space Station Program, Boeing and SpaceX are all working very closely together. We're evaluating um, 
exactly when opportunities might be and when they'll be ready, but we're not ready to set a date, an official date, I would say, at this point in time. Um, we're working to that. I think it's close to when we'll be able to do it. It's just, at this point in time, it's, it's, not, uh, it's not solid enough, really, I, and, and this is Kirk's opinion anyway, to, to say exactly what the date is. I'm sure companies are working to a specific date, but I would say all those things converging and saying, hey, we as a commercial crew program, a station program, a SpaceX and a Boeing, we're going to fly on this date. We have not agreed to those dates just yet. So um, as soon as we do, and it'll be soon, we'll, we'll let you know. SpaceX is still targeting August and December. Sure, people are working to those dates. Yes. What I'm saying is we as, as a, a combined group haven't said exactly what those, exactly when we're going to fly. So people have to work to dates. Right? It's very normal. Um, uh, so that's normal process. What you're hearing is very normal. This is not a negative thing. It's actually very normal. But in the end, we have in the space station, for instance, we have Progress as vehicles, we have Soyuz vehicles, we have spacewalks. It has to fit in amongst all those things. And so we just have to sit down all together, agree when the vehicles are going to be ready, when the certification's ready, and when it fits in the program plan. And that's the work we're still that's still in front of us. Bill Harwood, CBS. Well, Kirk, I mean, just to be honest, I. I been covering NASA a long time. I don't know anybody but you who says there's going to be a flight in August. So, I mean, if, if that's not real, I don't know why you all keep telling us that. I mean, I'm just curious. I don't, did I, I don't think I told you this. Well, I mean, that's, that's like Stephanie says, NASA keeps referring to August as a date, and everybody in this room knows that's not going to happen. I would think, anyway. I mean, I mean really. I well, so the way, the way the, of course, this is a different way of doing business than we've done before, but the way we do this right now is we talk to the companies. Actually, I say we. Frankly, it's the commercial crew program, but they talk to the companies. The companies say, hey, here's our target date, and that's the date that you see. So there's a, there's a, a, a meeting between the commercial crew program and SpaceX and the commercial crew program and Boeing, and they agree on a date, and that is the target date. So what you see is that target date. The, perhaps the thing we have not done as well about is really explaining all that's involved in flying a flight to space station, and those dates are still, we're, we're still in negotiation about what those dates will be. They'll be forthcoming very soon, but there are a lot of moving parts, many of which are not in the, many of the moving parts are not in the, the purview of any one individual, so it's really all of us getting together and agreeing when are all those parts going to fit together and, and create the opportunity. The female voice you did hear was uh, Stephanie Sher uh, uh, Shareholds basically saying that the launch dates as they stand currently are on the NASA website. And then um, uh, Bill Harwood kind of took umbrage to those dates. And um, it, the the response by Kirk Sharman was, was, I thought, was rather smart and rather, rather frank. I mean, his, his thought was, well, you have to have dates that you that you're working toward. And I can understand where he's coming from, but, you know, and, and the other stuff he talked about, too, basically saying that uh, it, there, there's a lot of other moving parts to this. You just can't, you know, fly with D1 and, 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 and that's it. you got to understand, too, where the ISS is going to be at that, that given point in time. Is it agreed to go ahead and do that at this point in time? Because there may be spacewalks, there may be other activities going on uh, that would kind of preclude this vehicle arriving at the station. So you've got to plug that vehicle in at any given time. Now, grant you to a lot of other people too, it could sound like a, you know, the old soft shoe, if you know what I mean. But there are other 
extraneous things that could lead to that. However, the uh, United States uh, General Accounting Office produced a report, uh, I guess it was released, I want to say Thursday or Friday of last week. It is Sunday, July 15th, as we record this, um, that basically indicated that both Boeing and SpaceX, while they're making some progress here, they still have a lot of things that they have to do. And to be blunt, they are looking at both of these things certif being certified for piloted flight, um, Boeing being gaining their certification first by um, the end of fourth quarter 2019. So we're talking December of 2019 and SpaceX getting its certification in first quarter of 2020. So we're talking about the January, February timeframe. They're saying too that the um, further direct, and I'll, I'll read directly from the uh, report here, quote, further delays are likely as the commercial crew program's risk schedule analysis shows that certification milestones are likely to slip. Also, what they found out is that NASA does not have a plan B, meaning that NASA only has Soyuz seats up until, I believe, November of 2019. After that, we're done. That's it. There's going to be no more Soyuz seats. And I think by law, we are not able to go ahead and buy any more. So we've got a little bit of a conundrum there as far as what we're going to do about ISS access going forward. Um, the GAO report did uh, give about five recommendations here. Um, recommendation number one, the uh, and I'll read this directly from the report. Uh, I'm looking at page 31 toward the bottom. Uh, the uh, NASA Associate Administrator for Human Exploration Operations should direct the commercial crew program uh, to include the results of its scheduled risk analysis and its mandatory quarterly reports to Congress. Uh, the NASA administrator should develop and maintain a contingency plan to ensure pre permanent presence on the International Space Station until a commercial crew program contractor is certified. The NASA administrator should direct the Chief of Safety and Mission Assurance, the NASA Associate Administrator for Human Exploration and Operations, the commercial crew program manager and the commercial crew programming contracting officer to collectively determine and document before the agency certification review how the, how NASA will determine risk and tolerance level with respect to crew, to crew loss. So again, they're not even sure what the numbers are as far as... Uh, <sighs> you know, loss of loss of mission, loss of crew. They're not even too sure what the percentage is. I mean, on shuttle, it was extraordinarily high. We all knew that, but they haven't really determined those numbers here yet. Um, also, it says here too, after completing the agency certification review, NASA's chief engineer and chief of safety and mission assurance, with the support from the NASA associate administrator for human exploration and operations and the commercial crew program manager should document the lessons learned related to loss of crew as a safety threshold for future crewed spaceflight missions given the complexity of the metric. So we may see that metric kind of spill over with Orion, but then again, I think 
Orion is is a safer vehicle because well it has to be. Uh, we'll just have to see if you know how those numbers work out for Orion. And the final recommendation. The NASA Chief of Safety and Mission Assurance should restructure the technical authority within the Commercial Crew Program to ensure that the technical authority for the Office of Safety and Mission Assurance is no longer a dual-hatted program um, with programmatic and independent technical authority and responsibilities. So they're basically saying there should be uh, there should be somebody over there that's that's responsible for uh, crew, you know, for the commercial crew side of the house, for crew mission and safety assurance. The, the dangerous part about it is, though, we still don't have a plan B to keep the ISS piloted past November 2019. So if things should slip further, we might have to think about running the ISS without a, a, a U.S. presence. And, and that's a frightening prospect. That, yeah, that, that is a bit scary. So that's a lot of government-written information. So let me just see if I'm disseminating this in English correctly. <laughs> so basically they're saying that both companies, both SpaceX and Boeing, are way behind where they're supposed to be. Part of it is they need crew safety numbers, and those numbers aren't in yet or aren't close to where they're supposed to be. Right. Uh, and then in terms of getting equipment and everything ready, obviously getting those safety numbers is going to be important. And once they get those to the right place, that may involve some modifications to the vehicles. By the time all this happens and then they get their official certification and hardware and NASA are all comfortable with it, we're figuring probably 2019 and 2020. Is that correct? That's the way it looks from this end. It's um... That's a lot. Again, I get it. This is the first time that NASA's ventured into commercial crew and you know they're not going to have as much oversight as they normally would with their missions like you're saying with orion it's going to be safe because it has to be this is going into the private sector which i mean i'm sure they're all going to do everything in their power i don't doubt that in the least to make sure that all their crew members that they launch are safe because they're a space company we all want that success but i mean this is just nasa keeps getting theirs delayed the two private companies now getting theirs delayed. It would be nice at least if we can get those unmanned test flights this year. Because if we can, then at least we're getting a little closer. But I'll be perfectly honest, all of us were kind of figuring 2019 anyway. Some people that I spoke to down at the press site, I won't name any names to call them out, but a lot of people I spoke with there also are saying, yeah, this is probably going to be 2019 before we see anything. But we were figuring early 2019, not late. Yeah, I mean, I, I mean to be blunt, I mean when when I saw that exchange between Bill Harwood and and uh, and Kirk Sharman, I, I looked at my my thought was, Bill, you're like the wind beneath my wings because uh, you know he he basically really really called BS on the 2018 numbers. I knew, I mean, and and he was absolutely correct to point out that nobody in that room believed that third quarter launch date of 2018 for um, the SpaceX, uh, you know, Demo 1 mission and Demo 2, the fourth quarter, you know, fourth quarter of this year. Nobody believed that, those dates. And uh, uh, this is going to be a lot more. Now, a lot, now, NASA's certification process has come under fire. I, I've talked to a few people on Twitter, and these guys were former engineers. And my thought on this whole thing, and Sawyer, you brought this up, this is brand new territory here. 
And NASA is being ultra careful because it's brand new territory. They don't want to go ahead and have a, well, you know, have a bad day and feel that they missed something here. I mean, you they were given a lot of leeway with the cargo end of it, and we've already had both um, both cargo providers stumble. Um, but that was to be that that kind of risk was to be expected, and NASA kind of planned for that kind of risk in that program. This kind, you know, you you don't have the luxury in 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 this in the commercial crew side of the house to have that kind of risk risk because you're dealing with human lives here. You're not dealing with, you know, logistics and, and experiments that could be replaced. You're dealing with, you, you know, the, the idea too, I mean, I, I still keep on thinking of that one poster that um, that's out there and, and uh, it, it's a poster of, uh, of, uh, of Gus Grissom. And it, it's, it was, it was put out there during the, uh, uh, the Apollo days. And it's just, just Gus in his, in his Mercury outfit and him just saying, do good work. And it was a constant reminder of that kind of thing. And you don't want to have that kind of poster running around there. You know, shouldn't, it, it shouldn't take the loss of life to go ahead and have the reminder saying, do good work. So I guess that's that's what I'm getting at. These guys want to make sure they get it right the first time. And I can almost understand where Kirk Shireman is. I can almost understand where anybody that's turning a, a, a wrench on the commercial crew program understands too and understands this is the stakes are far higher when you're dealing with, with humans. Knock, knock. Go ahead, dude. No, that that's serious. Knock, knock. Yes, sir. Who's, Who's there? there? I can't tell you. But here's a quote from somebody I'm going to talk about in a little bit here on the show. You don't concentrate on risks. You concentrate on results. No risk is too great to prevent the necessary job for getting done. Continue. <laughs> <laughs> well, I... uh, the perfect interlude there. Yeah, uh, I... One thing I do want to say about this is, again, this is not digging at any particular company at SpaceX or at Boeing. This is about safety. This is, I'd rather it take the extra time to make sure it's safe and done right. But at the same time, we're now getting close to two to three years behind both companies' original promises. Right. Yeah. And, and I'm, I'm, I'm with you, sir, but you know, you, you've got to bake this, this into, I mean, yes, you have to take a calculated risk. You have to say good is good enough. Some at some point in time, I totally agree with you there, but where is the threshold? And that's something I think that, 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 that everybody, you know, both SpaceX, Boeing and NASA are trying to, to work together to try to figure out where where is the good enough marker and how much risk do you want to take? And I don't think that's been been looked at totally. And that's what I think the GAO is, is, is getting at. Right. And again, it's just this is a really interesting topic. And one thing I do want to point out and and. Uh, again, I know SpaceX people are going to try and take this out of context, but this <laughs> oh, is just here we go. <laughs> what I'm about to say. But this, I'm just putting it out because it made me laugh and because even SpaceX people have to admit it's kind of true. Uh, so there was a, a talk recently with Gwen Shotwell, 
And uh, in it, she was asked about timing for plans for Mars and things like that. And they were discussing the numbers and someone asked her, so is that Elon time? <laughs> which, of which we've joked about that here before. We've mentioned it. And what she said, she basically said with Elon time, she's like, yeah, his numbers are a bit out there. So she's like, we're going to go with a few years before that and call it Gwyn time. Yeah. And, and you know something? Gwyn <laughs> Gwen Shotwell is probably the best thing that ever happened to SpaceX because she's sort of the, you know, the calming force. She brings everything back back down to Earth, no pun intended. And I think, too, she kind of is able to to kind of part the weeds a little bit and and kind of say, hey, you know, we're dealing in reality, too. So don't worry. We, we understand the challenges. So, yeah, I, I hats off to Gwen Shotwell. Exactly. And honestly, I believe Gwyn time yes. a lot. Hers are very realistic. It was just, I thought that was entertaining given uh, what we were discussing there. Agree. And Gwyn has also been great in the past about, you know, I've come up, I've approached her and just talked with her at the press site before. She's very approachable, very willing to talk. And she's, sometimes I wish she was the face of SpaceX more than Elon because she's got yeah. a, a calm head on her. She still has grand ideas, but a calm head and is very good, you know, with the media. So, um, but either way, best of luck still to both companies. We're obviously going to keep following these dates. Heck, I, one of the launches I was at recently, we had a whole conversation, no NASA TV coverage. It was all just about maybe 10 of us talking about the commercial crew program and getting that timing down. And it's, it's contentious even within that discussion. It's been a very interesting discussion. If you go back, I believe last year we covered that in one of the episodes, but it's yes. uh, something we will continue to follow. Indeed, Sawyer, and if there are any other updates, you can guarantee we're going to go ahead and go with them. So uh, to our audience, hang in there with us. We'll keep following the story. Absolutely. Uh, so while we're talking about uh, GAO and the government and things like that, uh, we are going to mention the fact that NASA has a new nominee for Deputy Administrator of NASA. Again, Jim Bridenstine was confirmed as the new administrator, and so his second-in-command is now possibly going to be a man by the name of James Morhard. He is currently the United States Senate Deputy Sergeant-at-Arms. Prior to that, he was Staff Director of the Senate Appropriations Committee. According to the NASA release on his nomination, it says during his tenure there, he ran the Senate Commerce Justice State Subcommittee that includes all NOAA programs and the Military Construction Subcommittee where public and private partnerships were first used for military housing. In a statement, Jim Bridenstine said the administration is committed to American leadership in space and I look forward to working with Mr. Morehart upon his confirmation. Yeah, Sawyer, I was actually like, um, what? When when this, this app came through, this is obviously a political appointee in some way, shape, or form. I know he had exposure with Noah. He was just nothing more really than a than a bean counter, sort of you know, a, 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 a Sean O'Keefe kind of individual within Noah. Um, and to be honest, I was a little disappointed. Um, I know uh, Janet Cavandi, who is uh, a former shuttle, shuttle astronaut. She was the director of the, uh, the Glenn Research Center. Uh, and I know Jim Bridenstine was hoping for her uh, to be named. In fact, he publicly even said so. Um, but in this case, he, you know, this is the nomination. It is what it is. Uh, do I think this is a good choice? I, you know, again, I would have, I would have preferred Janet Cavandi. 
Um, she would have been a, a, a masterful choice with this, but you know, we'll we'll see if we we'll see what uh, this gentleman brings to the table. Um, there was some choice words about uh, Mr. Bridenstine himself being uh, put in as uh, as NASA administrator too. So, and so far he's been he's been fantastic. I mean he he's been the public face of the agency. I, I don't. I, he's he's been out there. He's been on television. He's been interviewed by several uh, media outlets, several magazines, and so on. He's probably been um, one of the more visible uh, NASA administrators in his first few months than in, in recent memory. So, um, you know, hats off to Mr. Bridenstine that way. But uh, his number two, I don't know. I mean, it, it's in my eyes, it's an unknown quantity. I'm going to go ahead and reserve, try to reserve judgment until this individual steps into the role and and sees what happens. I have a feeling this, the confirmation process is probably going to go like a breeze. Um, I'm hoping it is going to be a lot less contentious than Mr. Bridenstine's uh, <laughs> nomination process, especially when it got in front of the... In, front of a, uh, a congressional hearing and we'll see if if uh, Morehart just zips through um, zips through this thing right I mean here's the thing again we were concerned about Bridenstine to start and so far like you said he's been out visiting NASA centers talking with employees he's been one of the most public faces of NASA administrators and it's fantastic and if this keeps up and he keeps up his openness and willingness to be out there with the people and learn and if James Moorhart does anything similar to that, then I think we have one heck of an, of an administration. It is just interesting the fact that, again, you mentioned that most of the people that fill these positions have a science role of some kind. Uh, obviously, we learned that Bridenstine does not have as much. Uh, he did help run a, planetar or, um, a planetarium at one point, but not necessarily a scientist. And in terms of the people before James Moorhart, just to give you an idea of whose shoes he's filling... Uh, the current acting deputy administrator is Lisa Rowe, uh, who was the director at the Langley Research Center. Uh, and then before her was David Newman, who was one of the chief scientists before that. And before her, another big science person, Lori Garber. So, I mean, you've had some big names in here that have actual backgrounds in engineering or science or aeronautics. And now we've got two people with political backgrounds. But so far, I'm impressed, to be honest, with Bridenstine. Yeah, Lori. In, in all honesty, she has a master's master's of science from the uh, George Washington University um, Elliott School of, uh, I mean, you know, science, technology, and public policy. So she is not a scientist per se, but she 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 studied the heck out of how to work DC and work. I've I've had some dealings with her personally during the nineteen nineties. And trust me, she's probably one of the smartest individuals that uh, you, you ever want in a role like that. That's one. We, we did have some differences of opinion when she was NASA administrator. But um, again, she's, she's, one of the sm she, she's one of the smartest people that I know. And um, one of the, uh, it was probably one of the better persons for that role. Um, but again, Sawyer, I'm going to reserve judgment until Mr. Moorhard gets in there. And yeah, again, Sawyer, thank you for, for pointing out that, that Bridenstine has been really, really out there as far as, 
um, being the public face of the agency. And that's something I think the agency really, really needs right now. So I will tip my hat to Mr. Bridenstein and, you know, send him my thanks and, and really, really um, hope that he continues on that path because it's something really the, the agency could use at this point in time. And the more it gets it gets known out there and the more he becomes sort of the public face of the agency, I think the better off I think we're, the agency is going to be in the long run. Exactly. And again, one thing is we try and be neutral on this show, at least me in particular. I pride ourselves on the fact that we don't let our personal politics try and get in the way. I mean, obviously, sometimes a little bit of it will pop out, but for the most part, we're neutral. And anyone that knows me personally knows that I'm very neutral when it comes to politics anyway. I lean both sides on different issues. Uh, and with this, again, one thing I'm very proud of so far with what they've done is that this has not become a political battleground. This has not become a political field yet. It's still all about the science, all about the people working at NASA and accomplishing a goal. And I hope it stays that way, because if so, then I will. I think we actually have a really good backing for NASA right now. Yeah, Sawyer, my fingers are crossed there. I mean, NASA historically has been apolitical. And I'm hoping that that stays. Right now, I think with with Bridenstine at the helm, it's it's probably going to stay that way. Um, and I'm just hoping now with the new associate administrator come, coming on board, that tempo stays the way it is. Space has always been a bilateral kind of thing. It's always had good support in both parties. It has not been a political football. Well, it has been a political football at, at, at times. But uh, both parties, at this point anyway, are are giving um, space a lot of lot of support, and hopefully it shows up in um, hopefully it shows up around budget time. But we'll we'll that that's a story for another day. Uh, but yeah, so are, you and I are cut from the same cloth on that, and um, I, I I'm gonna say say this, and I'm gonna say this as far as uh, doing the show here. That sometimes that's that's the joy of, of of doing this program, where we try to stay out of that realm, and I I'm trying to go ahead and make sure that we don't go down that path. So. Um, it's it's good to know that uh, I've I've got some backing on that uh, on that uh, particular point. Exactly, and that's part of the reason why I know there's been a lot of news about a space force being formed and things like that. Uh, there's still so much politics involved with that, and there's so much to it, which is part of why we haven't discussed it on this program. And I'm sure you can reach out to us and get our personal opinions, but don't expect a lot on that anytime soon on this program at least until it becomes a reality if you do enjoy our neutrality and just this show in general then you might want to consider voting for us in the upcoming podcast awards that's right for the first time talking space is nominated for a podcast award and we would love it if you enjoy the show to give us a quick vote all you gotta do is head on over to podcastawards.com, register, and cast your vote for Talking Space under the Science and Medicine category. A link to that is also in the show notes. Voting is open until July 31st, 2018, and thank you in advance. I do have to say, though, if you've ever, uh, some of people are not as uh, quiet about their political views and their thoughts on the way the space program and things like that are going. And uh, <laughs> one of those people in particular I've been following for years now, and it's his tweets can be hysterical in some instances and thought provoking in others, is um, Chuck Yeager, who you may know is the first man to break the sound barrier. Um, but Mark has been getting to know a little bit more about him in a different way. And I'm going to pass this over to you for uh, this next story. 
Well, tally-ho. Um, <laughs> 33 years ago, unknown to me, a book was published, title of which is Jaeger, an autobiography by General Chuck Jaeger and Leo Janos. Um, I didn't read it until October of 2017. Really cool book. I'm going to read some excerpts out of it because I want to encourage you to read it. One of the things that is on my mind as we hit July, well, July is the month I was born in. I'm not going to tell you how long ago. July is also, of course, famous for the uh, first steps on the moon. July is also on my mind in Chuck Yeager is still alive. And I'd like to talk about somebody that's really one of a kind while he's still with us and tell you about some things that are going on currently as I wrap up. But uh, Chuck Yeager was born in 1923 in February. That makes him 95 years old. He is one character. And this book, uh, if you choose to read it, and I hope you do, it'll give you an idea what it was like for him growing up in West Virginia, his early days in the Army. He enlisted in the U.S. Army Air Forces. He was a private. He became an aircraft mechanic. And within a year and a half, he was uh, part of a... Uh, class that graduated him as with his wings as a pilot. He flew in World War II. He was shot down. The book talks about that, talks about his escape from France into Spain with the help of the French resistance. And it really brings you into his life and to what it was like to be him during <laughs> some really incredible days. So here, without further ado, I just want to read you a few parts that I think are pretty cool. After World War II, he became test pilot, and uh, at some point, I don't have the exact dates, but he became a uh, graduate of the War College. Uh, after that, he was appointed to head the Air Force Aerospace Research Pilot School to train military astronauts, and that's where the talking space angle, I think, connects us real nicely with some things that were going on early in the space race. So the Air Force hoped to be the first ones to put men into space, but the Eisenhower administration chose NASA, a civilian agency, which ironically selected all military pilots for its first group of astronauts. He had a faculty and staff of 30, which included some names I think you'll recognize, Frank Borman, Tom Stafford, Jim McDivitt, before they joined NASA to become famous astronauts. He was tasked with developing some space, a space simulator, and he went to Washington, he lobbied, he got money, and $6 million later, they authorized them to build a space simulator far advanced for its day, and their kids were the first generation of Air Force pilots to be proficient using computers. One of the other things that he did, he got $4 million to convert some Lockheed Starfighters, that's the F-104, with 6,000-pound thrust rocket engines and hydrogen peroxide reaction controls on the nose and wings. That was the cheapest way they knew to give the student a minute and a half of zero-g. The airplane would get him up to 100,000 feet in an inflated pressure suit, and he could practice maneuvering with the reaction controls just as if he were in a space capsule. A couple of the students in his class is Major Mike Adams and Colonel Dave Scott. Major Mike Adams... He was a, a, had a good chance of either, and he chose between flying the X-15 versus being a NASA astronaut. He chose that X-15, and a couple years later, he was killed in it. 
Colonel Dave Scott was his classmate, and he chose NASA. He was with Neil Armstrong over the Pacific when the reaction controls got out of phase in the Gemini capsule. David took over, righted the thing, and got them back safely. Something that happened to these two pilots uh, in their in their days at the school. They were flying a two-seat version of the Starfighter. They were doing uh, very steep angle approaches. They needed to flare, apply power, and go around. On one of the runs, they lost their engine. The airplane hit the ground in a bash. Mike Adams in the back seat ejected just before it hit. David Scott didn't. It was an amazing decision to, to me, Chuck Yeager speaking. Both guys made a split-second decision that was absolutely correct, and both were opposite courses of action. The rear cockpit crunched, and if Mike had stayed, he would have been killed. If David had punched out, he would have been killed because when he hit, his seat was cocked sideways. Incidentally, Mercury astronauts were chosen before their school geared up. But over the next six years, the space agency recruited 38 of their graduates to their Corps of Astronauts. They had the most advanced experimental test pilot school going, and NASA relied heavily on their recommendations. Chuck Yeager was the commandant or the head of this test of this uh, space pilot school. Guys that were being approached from NASA about being astronauts, they came back and they told Chuck, uh, Colonel, we're overqualified for their program. All we get to do is ride like one of those damn chimps they send up. We don't get involved because everything is controlled from the ground. There's nothing to fly. And Chuck Yeager said, hell, I don't blame you. I wouldn't want to have to sweep off monkey beep before I sat down in that capsule. So, uh, to go on here... Uh, it sounds you know, like Chuck at... Yeager. <laughs> oh, God. It, it really does. As, as a side note, uh, somewhere back in the 80s, I heard Chuck Yeager speak to a local community uh, group when I lived in Tallahassee, and it was a special night. I don't remember the stories, but I just remember the man speaking and what he was like, and uh, really extraordinary. Anyway, back to uh, the early days of the space program. For signing up, guys got a free expensive house donated by a local realtor in Houston. They got a lucrative contract with Time Life magazine. Glamour, splash, money made it attractive to some. The guys came back from the interviews, and they told Yeager, all the talk in Houston is about how much money we're going to make. Okay, here's Chuck Yeager's take on the space program. My attitude was they should not get a dime for being selected for the space program, especially when the risks involved were not half as great as some of the research flying done at Edwards over the years. It rubbed me wrong, and I said so. Forget that crap. Don't ever make a decision whether to be an astronaut based on the damn perks. Either the program's right for you, or it isn't. And if it isn't, stay the hell out of it. So he had some opinions, and um, I want to give you just a couple more things. This is the long version, but uh, it's not as long as the book, and the book was a quick read when I sat down with it. I could not put it down. You hate say, hearing that and saying it, but it's a fun book. Uh, he says here towards the end of the book, The person I am is the sum total of the life I've lived. So far, I have very deep emotions about the blue Air Force uniform that I wore most of my adult life. The Air Force molded and trained me and who I am and whatever I am. I've accomplished, I owe to them. They taught me everything I needed to know to do my job. There's no such thing as a natural-born pilot. 
Whatever my aptitudes or talents, becoming a proficient pilot was hard work, really a lifetime's learning experience. He goes on further, he says, most pilots are killed when they get into situations where it's impossible to survive, while others, because of luck or knowing everything about their emergency gear, slip between the raindrops. I made my share of critical mistakes that nearly cost me my life. I climbed too steeply in the X-1A and paid for it by being bashed around the cockpit and scared out of my senses, knowing I was going in. To survive took everything I knew and ever experienced in the cockpit, so maybe one hour less of flying time could have been the difference between drilling a hole or landing safely. I saved myself by sheer instinct, but a knowledgeable instinct based on hundreds of previous spin tests. Experienced at spinning down to earth, I was less disoriented than others who had done it maybe fewer times and was more likely to make the right moves and save myself. And luck, the most precious commodity a pilot carries. How can I explain surviving a million to one odds against me when my ejection seat tangled in my parachute shroud lines set them smoldering to the point where after I landed, I pulled those burnt lines apart with a slight tug? I can't explain it. Nor can I sur explain surviving intact after getting clobbered by the rocket end of that chair, having my face set on fire. To survive, fly again, and have no facial scars? Luck. Pure and simple. Ever since Tom Wolfe's book was published, that would be the right stuff, that came out in 1983, I've been asked most often, and annoys me, whether I think I've got the right stuff. I know golden trout have the right stuff. I've seen a few gals here and there that I'd bet had it in spades, but those words seem meaningless when used to describe a pilot's attributes. The question annoys me because it implies that a guy who has the right stuff was born that way. I was born with unusually good eyes and coordination. I was mechanically oriented and understood machines easily. My nature was to stay cool in tight spots. Is that the right stuff? All I know is I worked my tail off to learn how to fly, worked hard at it all the way, and in the end, one big reason why I was better than an average as a pilot was because I flew more than anybody else. If there's such a thing as the right stuff in piloting, then it's experience. The secret to my success was somehow that I always managed to live to fly another day. And so I'll leave it with that and tell you a couple other things about Chuck Yeager. I've got something I think you'll enjoy. Uh, his website is chuckyeager.com, C-H-U-C-K-Y-E-A-G-E-R.com, chuckyeager.com. He was on a, uh, a show back in the 60s, 1964, called What's My Line? And it's a panel show where the panel tries to guess the occupation of the, of the guest. He was there. He signed in as C.E. Yeager. They didn't recognize his name. The uh, title of what's his line was Commandant of the Space Pilot School. And they didn't guess it. And if you start at the beginning of this video, and we'll have a link in the show notes, and it runs uh, just over 11 minutes, I think, uh, you'll, you'll get a kick out of it. it. It takes you back to another day back in the 60s. Um, on Twitter, uh, Chuck Yeager is at G-E-N-C-H-U-C-K-Y-E-A-G-E-R. So the abbreviation for general, G-E-N, and then his name. He tweeted um, earlier in July, working on a new film. Please help and be a part of it. 
There's a GoFundMe link. It's GoFundMe uh, slash Jaeger dash file. And we'll have the link to that. And what this fundraiser is all about is a group is working on a docudrama that they want to raise money for and try and move this forward to production later at the end of the year. Uh, if you watch a video that's on the site, uh, it gives you the details for $10. They list your name, blah, 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 100, etc., etc. So watch the video and you'll see some clips that I'm sure are going to be, you know, similar to what you'll see in this, this uh, documentary. And um, what can I say? The fact that uh, Chuck Yeager was within a few weeks of my dad's birthday, born in 1923, and hearing bits and pieces of World War II and reading books when I was a kid growing up, and the fact that he was there during the early days of our space program and trained so many people that were the names that, that we look back on as heroes. And the quote that I uh, gave you in the middle of when we were talking about uh, commercial space, where I said, uh, and this was a quote attributed to Jaeger, you don't concentrate on risk, you concentrate on results. No risk is too great to prevent the necessary job from getting done. I think one of the things that slows us down has got to be we don't tag every job as necessary. We consider things as optional. Does anybody want to lose their life? Certainly not. But... Uh, I don't know. I think sometimes we're too safety uh, concerned about safety and not willing to let people do the best they can, the smartest way they can. And that's one thing Chuck Yeager was, was a smart man, is a smart man. Um, take a look at his website. I think you'll enjoy it. I hope you read the book, Yeager and Autobiography. And thanks for listening to me for all this time. Sorry I took so long, but you can tell I like it. Yeah, Mark. I mean, shoot, you're talking about a living legend when it comes to uh, uh, to flight in general. It's like like talking about one of the one of the Wright brothers, or, or talking about uh, uh, you know Neil Armstrong himself, or or people like that. Chuck Yeager is 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 going to be one of those names that are that are going to live right alongside those individuals. And uh, I mean that that's a name that deserves all the time we can give it. So. Uh, uh, again, I pulled up as we were talking here, Mark. I pulled up the uh, the GoFundMe page, and uh, yeah, there, there's a there's a neat there's a there's a, a neat film describing what the funds are going to be used for and so on. And uh, uh, right now, as I as I talk um, on July fifteenth, um, it's so far raised uh, twenty three thousand seventy six dollars out of one hundred fifty thousand dollar goal. So, if you are so inclined, uh, we're going to have the link in the show notes, obviously. But um, if you are so inclined and and want to want to help even just a little bit, I I encourage you to do so. And again, as far as the book, once you read it, I think you'll really feel like you know the man because he takes you along for so many of these years of, of growing up, being a school kid and, and going off to war. Extraordinary reading. Yeah. I, Mark, I read that book when it was came, it came out. In fact, I have it upstairs somewhere in my, in, in my library. It's just, it's been such a long time since I picked it up. You're, you're kind of encouraging me to go back and, and, and read it. And because again, this, as you pointed out, this is a, another generation talking, talking to us and, 
trying to teach us something and hopefully we'll listen and and carry those lessons forward so uh it, it, you're encouraging me to go ahead and pick it up again so i'm, I'm probably going to end up doing that yeah and one thing i just want to point out is we are not sponsored in any way shape or form we are not associated in any way shape or form with this gofundme we don't have an amazon link you can click on to give us money to buy the book we don't have an audible sponsorship where if you use a code you get the audiobook cheaper we don't have anything like that this is just out of pure passion for it i mean if anyone wants to reach out with those opportunities we won't say no but this is passion that we're talking from here. This is not sponsorship. This is not paid. This is just our genuine love for it and recommendations. So hope you uh, can help if you can and pick up the book if you can as well. So two quick notes before we go. First off, we want to say a fond farewell to Space Launch Complex 17A and B at the Kennedy Space Center, which were destroyed this past week intentionally after more than 320 combined launches dating all the way back to the early missile programs ending with the Grail lunar missions and uh in between there you had a whole host of everything a lot of good delta 2 launches including spirit and opportunity and a bunch of other mars rovers uh and other things that have just gone beyond our earth and just a uh, fond farewell to those two launch pads yeah agreed sawyer they were mostly servicing i know uh, launch complex 17 at, towards the tail end was really really the place where a lot of the delta 2 launches as you pointed out occurred and with Delta II now ending its career uh, in September, those launch pads aren't, aren't needed for that purpose anymore. I believe uh, Moon Express is going to go ahead and take over at Launch Complex 17 and basically test their new lunar landing uh, capability out there. So uh, it's not going to be too long before we're going to see activity out there. Yes, uh, that is very true. Uh, they will be taking over it and it'll, again, the privatization of uh, Kennedy Space Center. If you've ever uh, gone to the Kennedy Space Center or taken the bus tours or anything, the sign as you go through the security gate just says Kennedy Space Center, a multi-user spaceport. And that is the very definition of it right there. And of course, before we go as well, uh, someone who owns a blog called engineeringpodcast.com, which takes a look at engineering-themed podcasts uh, and that discuss the topic, actually were kind enough to give us a review, so we want to give a shout-out to them as well and thank them for taking the time to listen to us and give a full detailed breakdown of the show and uh, their thoughts on where we are, where we're going, and uh, giving us a recommendation as a listen to everyone. So thank you to that. And if you did come from there, welcome. Um and if not, we thank you for listening anyway, and we'd like to thank everyone that joined us here tonight. Thank you for joining us, Gene McCulka. Thank you, and Mark, thank you too. That was a, a you, you're kind of encouraging me to go ahead and and, and dust off a, a book that I haven't read in a very long time. So uh, I appreciate your kind words tonight, and I'm looking forward to flying with uh, General Yeager again after uh, a, a, a little while, at least virtually, uh, through the pages of his uh, of his book. So thanks a lot. And there's another book out there. Um, that he wrote, I believe it was a sequel. It was more of his adventures after um, the uh, the military, uh, you know, further adventures in the good life, it's called. And, and it might be also something that you might want to go ahead and take a look at. Yes. And of course, thank you for joining us, Mark Ratterman. Yeah, thanks for the tips, Gene. I'll, I'll look up uh, some more things to read. And uh, it's good to be back. I've been holding on to this topic for a long time schedules being what they are it's been tough to make the recordings that we've had and it's good to be back thank you everybody we missed you like crazy mark glad to have you back at the helm and of course we'd like to thank you for joining us as well and uh we 
Thank you for sticking with us so far uh, with our new monthly schedule. We hope you guys are still appreciating it. It allows us to go more in-depth and give you some good stories. Our next episode should be quite the feature as Gene, you and I, along with Kat Robinson, will be at the Parker Solar Probe launch, which is currently scheduled for no earlier than August 4th. So we're going to have some exciting sound, hopefully, for you from Kennedy Space Center. And, again, the beautiful sounds of a Delta IV Heavy launch next time. Oh, I can't wait to hear the dulcet tones of a Delta IV. This is uh, the last one we both saw was uh, EFT-1. And I'm I'm looking forward to getting back at the Kennedy Space Center again. It's been way too long. And for me, it's been since February, which is also still way too long. Exactly. But... But yes, it's going to be some great coverage there. And again, even better audio than last time as our technology has improved since 2014 when we were there. But it's going to be a great show. We promise you that. We hope you'll join us for it. But until then, as always, have a great day, night, evening, or whatever it may be, where you are.